Hello and welcome to the Sense Network podcast. This six-part series was recorded at our National Advice Forum in 2019 and features industry thought leaders and financial advisors with a focus on advisor development. If you'd like to hear more about how Sense can help support your business, get in touch at sense-network.co.uk. For now though, on with the podcast. Um, right, okay guys, um, we're going to, um, um, as I say, uh, on to the last couple of sessions of the day. Um, I'm going to hand over to uh, Gavin, um, who I've... Oh, he's over there. I'm going to hand over to uh, Gavin to pick up um, on um, our impact investing, socially responsible, lots of terminologies here, isn't there? But, um, um, but the overall concept, impact investing, um, I think is one that is ever-increasing uh, on, on people's radars, uh, not just because of the ESMA and FCA commentary that's coming out um, um, regularly, it seems, at the moment, but also because I think it, it, it's climbing in, in consumer um, um, awareness. And I, I think, therefore, it's a particularly uh, pertinent topic for us to uh, end the day up. And we will follow on after Gavin's session with a, another panel debate uh, on, on uh, um, impact investing. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Gavin. And, uh, well, thank you all for sticking around, and um, I'm impressed to see the hardy souls that are persevering on through the afternoon. Noticed a few at the back with a, f a few uh, couple of beers, and <laughs> so I hope they're plastic bottles that don't end up over here. Um, but my name's Gavin Francis. John's introduced me, obviously. Um, I founded a company called Worthstone, which is um, a small but purposefully founded business. We're a social purpose business. So that means we've got a dual objective. We want to be financially sustainable, like all of your businesses. Um, but we also have a social objective built into, the, built into the business. So as directors, we're responsible for achieving both of those aims, financial and social outcomes. Um, and I'll go on to talk about a little bit more about that. But the reason we set up the business is because um, we believe that investment capital should be used as a force for good. Um, I won't bore you with my backstory, but uh, many years in financial services, and um, this is something that I think is fundamental to this industry, um, the financial advice profession, um, and I wanted to be a big part of making sure that that continues um, as a legacy uh, for the next generation as well. Um, and the other thing that we believe, and I know these are all simple principles, but they're, they're useful for us to be founded on, is that every investment has an impact. So I was chatting to someone in the, uh, in the break there, and I genuinely believe that um, in the next few years, there won't be a difference between investments that are labelled ethical SRI, impact and whatever, and traditional investments. All investments will be considered impact investments because it's another dimension of return that investors are going to be looking at as closely as the financial metrics um, and I hope to be able to go on and, and sort of talk a bit more and unpack that for you, why I think that, um, and convince you too. Because in the next 20 minutes, I'm going to try and make the decision for you really simple about whether or not you should fully embrace this within your businesses and your practices and with your clients um, by talking about why, why should you do it, how you can do it, and what it actually is. Because as John pointed out, there's a myriad of terms and terminology and taxonomy and all lots of other fancy names for the different labels that we put on things. Um, and that's, part, that's partly a barrier to this progressing. So I want to try and 
untangle some of that and strain out um, some of the confusion um, and see if we can get a bit more clarity around that area. Um, and just to give you some background, that's the sort of stuff we do. We run an annual event, we do some training, we have a training manual, um, we have a portal that helps advisors to screen the entire universe of UK retail listed funds uh, that have an impact um, and you can scope and screen from that. So that's the background from which I'm coming from. I thought it was important for you to know because you've probably never heard of Worthstone, so I'll give you that bit of backstory. So this is one of the key questions I think you probably all have to answer or get a client to answer in order to put a financial plan in place for them and give them financial advice. Um, and I think this question um, to this point has been a little bit boxed in, in terms of we have a bias as to what we're expecting the answer to look like when we ask a question like this. And I think it's important that actually we put that aside to one, for one moment and think about what this could mean from a wider perspective in terms of what are you trying to achieve from your wealth. Um, and again, I want to just look at that in a bit more detail now um, because one of the things we think about when we think about that question is, well, a client's going to have financial goals, and that's absolutely right. We all have financial goals. So that's going to be one of the things they want to do with their wealth is to achieve those financial goals. But the other question is, should we care and do our clients care about how they achieve those goals, those financial goals? So how they travel on that journey towards that goal. Do people care about that? I'm sure you've all watched Have I Got News For You? Yes, one person. <laughs> so this is the odd one out round. Anyone hasn't a guess which one's the odd one out? Shout it out. Ooh. It's not the trousers. Good guess. Yes, why? Or was that you just saying that's... <laughs> it's, the reason is he's not got a connection to Burberry. All the others have got a connection to Burberry. Now you might ask, why has burning a pair of jeans got a connection to Burberry? Well, earlier this year, Burberry were slightly caught out because they were caught for taking £50 million worth of their stock, putting it on a nice big bonfire and setting light to it. And I don't know what you think about that, but I think that's a terrible waste. Not only that, if you're a sort of eco-warrior as well, um, you know, that's creating a lot of emissions. Um, and it's just, it's just a weird thing to do, right? You take a whole load of stuff that's really expensive, you pile it up and you pour, douse it with petrol and, and throw a match on it. I mean, is that, is that sort of reasonable behaviour? But this is our most prestigious... UK fashion brand, and that's what they're doing. Now, what was more interesting than that is that within 24 hours, there was an outcry because it, it went out on social media and people found out about it, and the CEO of Burberry turned around and said, we are changing our policy, we will not do this any longer, because we actually believe that we have a responsibility to society and the environment, and we shouldn't be doing this, and we've recognised that now, a little bit after the event, obviously. <coughs> But the point I'm trying to make is, 
there was an immediate reaction to that because suddenly people realised that can't be the right thing to do. Now, the reason they did it was because they have a financial objective within their business and their excuse was that if that um, kit gets out into the open market or the black market, more importantly, it devalues their brand. Well, that's the argument they make. But that's a financial argument. And so the point is, actually, do businesses, do people care about how they make their money? And I think the answer is yes. And I think the answer is more and more often, yes, people do care. So here's another odd one out. Anyone get this one? Any guesses? Which one? The same, no, no. Good guess, good guess, but that is Eleanor McCarthy. She is the, uh, MacArthur, sorry, um, Eleanor MacArthur. She is the round the world yachtswoman, and she's a, she set up a foundation to um, promote what's called the circular economy. So it's an efficient, um, economically and environmentally and socially effective economy that she's trying to uh, promote in the UK. And she does a, a survey, the foundation does a survey every year, and it's to do with plastic wastage. Now, Coca-Cola came out, sorry, the other one out is the blue whale. But Coca-Cola came out in this survey of all of the global businesses. They produce three million tonnes of waste packaging every year. So just to put that into perspective, that's the equivalent of 200,000 bottles per minute. And if you just want to picture that, if you look at a blue whale and the size of a blue whale, and that's, uh, that's it in perspective next to a little speck in the corner as a diver, that's roughly the same as 15,000 blue whales. So that's the amount of plastic waste that they're producing every year. Um, and they're the worst offender. In fairness to Coca-Cola, they were, they were transparent enough to be able to share that information, and they're working towards reducing that. But again, the point is, these are all things that are now, you know, people are much more conscious about um, in society. And the reason for that is this connected society that we have. The, the power of the consumer, the awareness of the consumer, um, which is really coming to bear and, and, and coming into force um, in terms of making a difference and, and, and really standing up and saying, I'm not happy about these certain behaviours. And we're seeing more and more of that. And the, the plastic waste thing is, um, is, a, big, is a big issue in, in, in the world in terms of reducing that. Um, so big global corporates are, um, are really getting this message. And someone in the audience, his wife, works for this organisation, and she may have even written this statement for the chief marketing officer. And they believe that being a sustainable business is one of the most important criteria for a global corporate um, in, the, in the future years, um, for now and, and going forward. And their most successful brands, the, the brands that are achieving the highest growth in terms of business growth, are the are brands that are sustainable within, under their umbrella. Brands like Ben and & Jerry's and Dove um, and Lifebuoy. And he went on to say that those businesses that don't embed sustainability as, as within the DNA of their businesses will not be around in 50 years' time. 
Now, I think he's wrong. I think it's going to be shorter than 50 years. I think those businesses are going to die out in the next 20 years. Because if you're not relevant to society, people aren't going to use you. And there was a solid lesson to us from the high street this week with M&S. One of the analysts I listened to who was talking about M&S was saying um, you know, that they've adjusted their pricing to try and um, reach the market and, and reprice. But he was saying it isn't about pricing, it's about relevance to their customers. And they've lost their way in terms of relevance. And I think the same thing applies to businesses that aren't sustainable. So why is this actually important? Well, who cares? Well, actually, people care, investors care, and here's just a few stats as evidence as to why you need to be thinking about it, because investors will be thinking about it. So 40% of um, people think that... Well, sorry, this was um, a survey that was done by YouGov, and there were 700 participants in this survey. 40% of them thought that companies now need to be reporting not only on their financial um, achievements, but also on their social and environmental footprint. Millennial investors, a lot of people talk about millennial investors and how important they, that they think sustainability is. They're twice as likely to make a brand uh, consumer decision based on those values as, as uh, the general population, and three times as likely to work for a business that exhibits those sorts of values. So again, as a business, if you're looking at recruitment and things like that, this is a really, really important area. We've just been involved in a recruitment process and we, had, we were inundated with, with applications. And part of the reason is, um, is because of what we do and why we're doing what we do. Um, and the person we ended up recruiting has taken a £15,000 pay cut to come and work with us. One, because I couldn't afford to pay the salary she was on, but because it was so important for her as part of her working life to be able to be involved in a business that exhibits these sorts of um, values. Um, and looking at it from an investment perspective, there are loads of um, surveys out there that are basically saying the lowest one I've seen is, you know, just over 50% of investors would like to invest on a sustainable basis. So this one behind me is saying is stats from 2017 from Morgan Stanley saying 75% grows to 86% if you look at the millennial cohort. 64% um, have increased their allocation to sustainable deployment in 2018 was the stat from Schroeder's. But I think most importantly, there was, a, there was a survey results published last month by the government, the UK government. They did a survey of 6,000 people in the UK. Um, and it was basically looking at... Um, you know, whether or not they were interested in sustainable investment. And 56% of that, of that cohort said they would invest in a sustainable investment if they were given the choice to do so. And I think that's the most important part, is that little end bit on the end of that question, was if they were given a choice to do so. So I sometimes, and I travel around and talk to hundreds of financial advisors, and I'm told our clients aren't interested in sustainable investments. And I just don't believe that anymore because I, you know, all of, the, all of the stats that I see, and admittedly, I'm looking at it a little bit through rose-tinted glasses, but this was a UK government survey of 6,000 people, um, which is the largest sample I've ever seen. So most surveys come up at about 500, 700. <clears throat> so hopefully, 
that gives you a little bit of evidence as to why I think it, it does matter and people are interested in this area. But the other thing to then think about is what exactly is it that we're talking about? I mean, I call it impact investment um, because I just want to try and get a round term to, to bring it all into under one umbrella. But there are loads of marketing labels out there. So marketing people over the years have put different labels on things from different asset managers, <coughs> basically to sell their process. So you've had ethical, which was selling a process of screening things out, but then what are you left with that's left in, in that investment? You've had SRI, which was taking a more positive approach. You've had ESG, which has come to the fore more recently. Um, you've had sustainable, you've got impact. So it can be a bit confusing. You know, there are lots of these terms and there's lots of terminology. But this is um, a definition given by the Global Impact Investors Network, which talks about an investment that has the intention to generate a positive social and environmental in, um, outcome, but alongside a financial return. And I think that's the critical bit, is we're not saying throw out the financials. We're not saying clients are no longer interested in financial return. We're saying that they're actually interested in getting more than just a financial return. And that's, that's the difference. And actually, in this survey, I mentioned about the 6,000 uh, members of the public. Um, and they were a representative sample. They looked at um, people with £25,000 investable assets and more. And those people in that cohort, 75% of them wanted sustainable investment. So that's quite interesting, because it's showing us that actually people who are investors and have the money to invest are even more interested than the general um, sample of the population. But also, it clearly said that 65% of those people rank risk and 71% rank return as being the most important factors or amongst the most important factors as well. So, that, you know, that's not rocket science and that won't surprise any of you here. But what I'm saying is it's still important to produce a financial return as well as the, as well as the positive outcome. So we're not saying throw out the financials. Now, what I wanted to do was leave you with a practical tool, um, something that will actually help you to implement something like this within your practice, within your conversations with the clients. Because it's fine someone up here, you know, talking about you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And I don't advise clients. I'm not in your position. I am the client of a financial planner and I pay them a, a planning fee every year for that advice. So I do know what you do because I'm the recipient of that and I'm really pleased with what I get and the service I get, which is why I pay a fee for it. Um, but this, I think, is a really useful tool. And the reason I think it's a useful tool is because it's been used by advisors having these conversations. And what this is, is it's called a spectrum of capital. So basically, it's the silos you can see are the different product labels that have been put on these things over the years. But what it's taking it from is a client's perspective. So when you say to a client, what these surveys have said is the client wants to do good as well as achieve a financial return. So the client wants to do good. Well, that's just your impact goals. And then the next question is, well, how do you want to do that good? How does that good look like? How do you achieve that good? And so that can be by screening things out. It can be taking a more positive approach. It can be through just looking at how a business is run, how their governance is, and maybe selecting companies that, that score highly on that basis. But what this helps you to do 
is start to strain out some of that confusion and, and in, in a very simple, but as Abraham was saying earlier, an elegant way, it's actually enabling you to have a conversation around the different ways in which you can travel on that journey and get a better idea of what clients are actually looking at. And this is a really interesting conversation piece. Advisors that I speak to, and again, you know, slightly biased because obviously they'll be coming to me because they're interested in this area, but they're coming back to me and saying, Gavin, when we have these conversations with clients, the clients are saying to us, this is the most engaging thing you've ever brought to me. This is the thing I've been most interested in in all the things you've ever talked to me about. It's this area because it does reach people at a different level um, and it's relevant and that's the point. It's relevant to the way that people are thinking now. And if you work for one of those big global corporates, you're seeing this in work as well. You're seeing this manifest itself in those businesses. So it should be talked about from a financial perspective because it won't be long before the clients are joining up all those dots. So this is just the size of the market. I'm not going to spend too much time on here, but basically we, we um, have identified 250 funds that sit on that spectrum of capital. And they are funds, they're collectives that are available to UK retail investors. And the size of those, the combined size of that uh, fund collection is, uh, is now just over 100 billion actually. So it's a sizable market as well. It's not the biggest market but it is a sizable market and you can uh, get coverage across all of the asset classes. So, as I said, we believe that every investment has an impact. And the other thing to just, and you won't be able to see the detail in this slide, but you just need to see the colors on this. The really important thing to think about now is not just about this as a sort of altruistic way of doing things. You know, it's not just about doing good. If you're ignoring the risks that are inherent in our global economy as it transitions to a low carbon basis, you are not serving your clients well because these are the things that are going to impact investment going forward. And this is a, a, an annually published survey which comes out from the World Economic Forum and it's the research from 800 of the world's leading economists distilled down into this annual report. So this isn't some tree-hugging, sandal-wearing, sock-wearing person with a big banner outside Parliament. These are people who we've come to trust and respect when it comes to casting an eye over what's happening in the economy. But it's not just one economist. This is 800 of the world's leading economists. So we're distilling down anecdotes and we're putting it into proper hard fact. And at the top, they're categorised, the blue boxes, economic risks. The um, orangey boxes are um, societal risks. The red boxes, sorry, the red boxes are societal. The, the uh, orangey boxes are geopolitical. And the purple boxes are cyber risks. The green boxes are environmental risks. And all I want you to see here is the top band, it's over the last 10 years, the top band is risks in terms of likelihood, and the bottom band is risks in terms of impact. And all I'm asking you to recognise is risks have gone from blue, which is economic, to more green and orange, and obviously there's a couple of purple cyber we're all aware of risks. Now again, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out what's happening here is the bigger, big risks in our global economies 
are really revolving around societal and environmental pressures. And again, just I really want to emphasise this because it's something called a grey rhino. So the World Economic Forum, you've heard of black swan, which is an event that comes along that no one knew about. The grey rhino is the blindingly obvious that we're all choosing to ignore. And that's what they're talking about in terms of these risks. So I was told that, that returns are a problem. Everyone believes that if you're investing in this sort of way, you can't get the same returns as you could through a tr traditional portfolio. Well, again, I've looked at the evidence and I've spoken to people who are much cleverer than me, who are leading um, uh, people at London Business School. Head of finance at London Business School, for example, is, is a great example. I know that guy. And he said he's done a meta-survey. That means he's looked at all of the data in the market, no, no matter where it comes from, from academic reports, which are looking at um, returns you get from SRI and returns you get from the traditional market and what the comparison is. And his, and I, I should quote this really rather than just sort of, but his, his basically his um, summary was to me, there is no clear negative effect on performance from investing in this way. But not every SRI pays off. But you can't say sustainable investment is better than traditional investment, and you can't categorically say that it's any worse. And he's also a professor in behavioural bias, and that's why he's coming from it from that perspective, because actually he believes that we do have a, a bias within our own sort of profession, that actually we think that returns aren't as good. And so sometimes that comes across in the way we talk to clients about it. You know, would you like that sort of ethical investment? It's, you know, you might have to sacrifice returns if you go that route, but is it something you'd be interested in? Well, of course the client's going to go, well, well, I'd get less if I go that route. Possibly. You know, it's the way in which it's put across. And there's a danger, if we're not asking the questions in the right way, that we can obviously be putting our bias onto other people as well. But the evidence is, and this is another study, um, George Serafin is basically, uh, I don't know, he's got 500,000 followers on Twitter or something like that. He's the, the guy, the main academic in the area of ESG. And they reviewed the US market. They looked at 18 years of returns on the US market. And they saw that companies that have sustainability at the core of what they do outperform the rest of the market. So there's... You know, there's evidence you can put forward on either, either side, but there's nothing that is categorical to say that you will be better off either way. So these are just some more... not sure how much time, John, have I? Two minutes. So I'll quickly run through. These are basically some surveys we did with the CISI with advisors, and it's basically telling us that 85% of um, advisors believe their clients have got an interest in the area. Um, they think that it's likely to grow. This is, these are from 2017 and things have moved on since then, admittedly. Um, but interestingly here, only 30% say it's, a, it's, it's always part of the conversation. Another 43% say they'll raise it if it's raised by the client. And 26% say they never talk about it at all. And then just very quickly, we do offer that impact portal. Um, it is on a subscription basis. 
but we use the sustainable bit, uh, development goals as a way of evaluating how well funds are doing in terms of what positive impact they're creating. And that's a conversation for another time, but it's a globally accepted framework. It's like basically a global to-do list of the most pressing challenges that our Earth faces from a, both a social and environmental perspective. Um, and it's a way that you can start to rate funds. So we have a rating process so that you can rank those funds based on impact. Um, and we take a fund, we take a company like Lego, we look at the underlying, so we take a fund and look at the underlying holdings and analyse the company and how it um, maps across to the SDGs. So risk and time and return are all still absolutely critically important, but we think impact is also now another dimension within investment that investors are going to be looking at. So our portal helps you to rank and screen those, gives you information on the funds, and then gives you tools to be able to talk to clients about it and help them to visualise what that impact might look like. But basically, the way I wanted to leave this was that we spend a lot of time in conversations like this, and you've sat there and listened to what I've had to say, and I really do appreciate you um, sticking around and listening. But what I would like to say is, let's do something. If we feel motivated that we should do something, let's just make a point of saying, we will take one intentional step when we go back to our office to do something about this. And if it's like, actually, I don't believe you, and I don't, you know, I don't think my clients are inclined, then that's fine. But there are going to be some people out there that actually believe there is something that should be done here. And maybe it's surveying the clients. Maybe it's including a way of having that conversation. Maybe it's using that spectrum of capital. You can go onto our website and get it. I'm more than happy to send you slides to help you to have that conversation. But please do do something intentional with what you've heard today, if you actually believe in it. Um, and hopefully you can take that forward, because I think it will make a difference in your business, and I think it is relevant to the people you're talking to. Um, so hopefully there's been something useful there, but thank you very much for your attention. I really appreciate it. That concludes the six-part advisor development series recorded at our inaugural National Advice Forum at Manchester Hall. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to be updated with new episodes. And to find out whether Sense would be a good fit for your business, go to sense-network.co.uk.